We are continuing our series on Romans chapter 1 and the gospel of God, and we are specifically focused on the results of the gospel. We've been at this for a couple of weeks. Remember, at the heart of our good news is that Jesus, the crucified and risen one, is the Messiah, the world's true king, and that through his ongoing ministry, by the power of the Spirit, God is reconciling all things and making all things new. Most basically, the results of this good news going into the world create transformed lives. That is that you and me, those who have encountered Jesus and are being changed and transformed, we are the results of the gospel going forth into the world. And we've seen that the people who encounter Jesus are characterized up to this point by the obedience of faith. We saw that in verse 5. And then last week that they have a secure identity from verses 6 and 7. They are loved by God. They belong to Christ Jesus. And they are called to be saints or called to be holy. This transformation, the life that is changed by Jesus, this new identity, it includes a whole new way of living that is empowered by God himself, by the Spirit. And it's a way of living that is marked fundamentally and foundationally by service. This isn't the precise subject of the next eight verses in verses 8 through 15, but it is laced throughout this section. And our goal is, as we continue to study Romans 1, is to pick up the bits and pieces in this section that highlight the call to service. The gospel of God makes us servants of God, servants of all, and servants of one another. And over the next few weeks, we'll explore each of these dimensions of the gospel and its work in our lives together. So having said this, let me say a preliminary word and make a general comment. It is important to note, I think, that we live in a world that generally prizes leaders. Our institutions are obsessed with the idea of leadership. We are all about leaders. And the church often uncritically adopts this emphasis as well. We focus on leaders, on identifying leaders, developing leaders, and sending leaders, and so on. We love the book of Nehemiah because of its lessons on leadership. I have nothing against the book of Nehemiah, just to be clear, uh, and its lessons. One of the biggest churches in America that has had a huge influence is known for its annual leadership summit. And there are countless pastors and former pastors who have started or are producing material on leadership and consulting with business and nonprofit and church leaders all the time. And I want to say some of this is really good and I've benefited from a lot of this over the years. I don't want to be seen for a moment as in any way denying the, un, the, the importance of leadership, both in the church or in the church as well as in government or business or families. In fact, it's often our neglect of leadership, and sometimes we neglect it in the name of being spiritual, that can lead to significant problems in churches. So if leadership is your passion, if this is your career, if this is what you do, and I want you to know, I think that's great. We need you, we love you, and we need your gifts and your teaching. But I also want to say, honestly, uh, that I'm a bit suspicious of this focus in God's church. This past week, one of our ministry leaders was inviting a young man to be on their leadership team that she helps, she helps to lead this ministry. And his response, I think, I don't know him, but I think it was brilliant. He said, 
Oh, I'm open to serving, but I struggle with being asked to be on a leadership team. I don't want my pride to get mixed up in that. He was just more happy of thinking of himself as a servant. The idea of being a leader can, if we're honest, really appeal to our pride, to our sense of self-importance. Leaders matter. They shape the world around them. And who doesn't, for a moment, want for himself or herself or for his children or her children to be leading the way, to be making a difference, to be changing the world, to be leaving a legacy? Of course, there's something good in that desire that we all have, for sure. But I think there's something that can be misplaced as well. I wonder if, like this young man, the reason that Jesus doesn't really talk about leadership is, and the reason that when he does do so, he speaks in such countercultural, upside-down ways, is that he doesn't want to appeal in any way to that dimension of ourselves, of our sin-prone hearts, that wants to be out front, setting the pace, on top, etc. Jesus seems to be pretty happy with talking about being a servant. He doesn't focus or have a class on leadership development. He focuses on making disciples and calls them to a life of service. And he shows us the way in this and he sets the example for us in it as well. I really do believe from the depth of my heart that the church, instead of mirroring the leadership obsession of our culture and doing that sometimes uncritically, is to be marked by centrally taking up the gospel of Jesus and the call to take up our cross and to be a servant. That we are to equip the body of Christ to overcome ego and pride and fear and anxiety, these things that often get in the way of us taking the lower place and pouring our lives out in the world for the sake of others and for God's glory. So if that sounds uninteresting or uninspiring, I'm sorry. I do believe that it's a very biblical thing to say and a Jesus kind of thing to say. And my hope is to convince you that this is in fact not just uninspiring, but in fact it is to call us to the way that we were meant to be. The way that God created us to live, which is really the only way to truly live. For in and through the gospel, God refashions, we might say he recreates all of us into what we were initially created to be, which is servants. In our home, uh, I often am the one assigned with the superglue, the task of supergluing. We have four kids, and we, over the years, have had a regular supply of broken things in our household. Plates, watches, bowls, picture frames, toys, and the list goes on. <clears throat> and when things are broken, they get put on a, on, a, on a countertop in our kitchen, and I know what I'm supposed to do. Get out the superglue and go to work. Plates can't hold food if they're broken. Frames can't hold pictures. And the problem with broken things is they can't do what they were designed to do. Most recently, it was our LED camping lantern. The plastic handle had ripped apart during our last trip as a family. And when we got back from that trip, I pulled out the super glue and put the handle back together. I didn't tell anybody I did it. And then we went on with life. And then last weekend, I was camping with one of my daughters. And we were getting into the tent at night. And I set the lantern up. And she goes, Dad, you fixed the lantern. And I said, yes. And it wasn't so exciting that I had fixed the lantern. But now the lantern could do what it was supposed to do, what it was designed to do which was to shine light into the darkness. Through the gospel, God is fixing broken things. Chief among them, you and me. We've been broken by sin. 
We've been distorted. We've been turned inward upon ourselves. And in the gospel of Jesus, God is restoring us to what we were meant to be all along. And then we can do what we were created to do, which is to shine his light into the world. And we shine that light chiefly as servants. Servants of God, servants of all, and servants of one another. There is no greater calling for us. And we'll begin today with the fact that the gospel makes us servants of God. Four sections of this. First, our fundamental relation to God as a servant. Second, how we come into that relation. How do we become servants of God? Third, the motivation for this life of a servant. And then fourth and finally, the sphere of our service. Where does this take place? So first, the fundamental relation of a servant. Paul finishes his opening greeting in verse 7. And he gives a statement of thanksgiving for the recipients of the letter. And it's an amazing statement. We're not going to focus on it. But verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That's just astonishing. Paul hasn't met the church in Rome, but he's giving thanks for them because their faith, or we might say their faithfulness, their ongoing living with Jesus as king and expressing that in their life has been known through all the world. And then <clears throat> he moves forward and says this in this kind of parenthetical comment in verse 9, which clarifies the relation between him and God. He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. As one who has been transformed by the gospel, Paul now sees himself as serving God. The verb here for serving, whom I serve, can also be translated as worship. And it's generally associated with service in a religious or cultic context in the ancient world. And it, it's the same word, in fact, as a noun. Here it's a verb, but as a noun, it's used at, as a, as a key, at a key turning point in the letter to the Romans at chapter 12, verse 1, a verse many of you are familiar with, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or it could be translated your spiritual or rational or reasonable service. Present your bodies as servants. The point is that after the gospel has been expounded for the entirety of the letter up to that point for, by Paul, the response is to worship and to serve the living God by offering ourselves to him. And that's what Paul says he's doing in verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. By mentioning this in verse 9, Paul is bringing back to our minds what he said in the opening words of his greeting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. The first word is his name. And the second word is the word doulos, which gets translated here as servant. Could also be as bondservant or slave. And Paul opens many of his letters in this same way with this word doulos. James does it as well in James chapter 1, the first verse. And also Peter does this too in his second epistle. Uses this same word doulos. Clearly, this was an important self-understanding for the earliest followers of Jesus. The word doulos in the ancient world could apply to a range of relationships, all of which deal with servitude, some of which were more extreme than others. But the key idea here is one who is solely committed to another, one who is given exclusive and total allegiance to another. This means surrender, and it means doing the will 
of someone else. That's what a servant does. To say that I serve God is to say that I long to do his will. And actually, this is at the heart of our relationship to God. Jesus taught us how to pray, and we prayed that prayer already today. And how does that prayer begin? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's an act of worship. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer that God would do his will here on earth. And when we pray that prayer, Jesus is teaching us to train our hearts to surrender to the God of heaven and earth, our Father who is in heaven, to yield to him. When we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven, <clears throat> without obstacle, without any hedging, what we're praying is, Lord, do that through me. Use me. Let me be your agent and your instrument for your will, which is done perfectly in heaven, for it to be done here on earth. Lord, use me. Jesus wants us to grow in this way, and that's why he teaches us to pray like this. Those rightly related to the God of heaven and earth are in a posture of surrender in which they're yielding, yielding their will to God's will, offering our lives to God for his purposes. In 1 Kings 14, David is described as God's servant in the words of the Lord himself through the prophet Ahijah. He says, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. The chief feature of a servant is to do the will of our master with our whole heart. This should resonate with our message a few weeks ago in verse 5 about the obedience of faith. That this is the result of the gospel. Creating a people who are transformed and now marked and shaped by a single-minded devotion to doing the will of our father. Paul is committed to this. He's owned body and soul by God. He has no claim upon God, but he recognizes God's claim upon him as total and complete. So he begins his letter by identifying his relation to the Lord. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. This is the only proper way to relate to God. And that is, after all, what we are here to encourage and to promote as the people of God in the world. The living God of heaven and earth who is powerful and almighty and holy and just and true, longs for us to relate to him rightly and properly as a servant. Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 17 about doing God's will as servants, and it ends with these words. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And it's true. To serve God with our whole lives, is in fact our duty. We don't like duty language, but it is in fact our true duty as creatures made by a creator. Every single thing that we enjoy, every breath, every meal, every ability to think or to work hard is a gift from God himself to us. We didn't make any of it. It was given to us. And because it was given to us, we owe him our very lives. We owe him our service in completeness. To reject this, as many do, is to reject the nature, the true nature of our lives. Now, certainly our relationship to God is more than this, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but it's not less. This is a, we reject this proper relation of, of being a servant, and I want to give you two ways that we do that before we move on to our second point. Sometimes we try to make God our servant. We know this, right? God, you're there to do my bidding to make my life what I think it should be, 
to help me with this problem at the office or this situation in my life. And of course, there's a lot of truth to that in one sense. But in another sense, it's a, it's a distortion of a proper relation to God. When we come to God with demands and we put him under our own examination. In an essay that he wrote in September of 1948 entitled Difficulties in Presenting the Christian Faith to Modern Unbelievers, C.S. Lewis said this, and these are well-known words. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God in the dock. Often we put God under our own demands and we take the higher place. A second way that we reject this proper relation in our sin is by worshiping or serving something else, something that is not God. In fact, as Paul continues to open up the book of Romans later in chapter one, he talks about the effect of our rebellion against God in our lives. And he says this in verses 24 and 25, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creature. Sorry, the creature rather than the creator. That was important not to mess that one up. <laughs> Thank you for your laughter. We start to serve the creature. We serve something other than the God who made us. And here's the point, we all have to serve. We all will worship, we were created that way. When Jesus said no servant can serve two masters, you remember that? He was talking to us because he knew that our fundamental nature is to be a servant. He didn't say you, you might serve, but you will serve, but you can't do two masters. Michael quoted from Sinatra last week, so not to be outdone, I'm gonna quote from Bob Dylan this week. <laughs> from his song in his Christian era, you gotta serve somebody. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may, be like, you may like to gamble, you might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Very true. We can't help it. And one of the ways that we reject our true and proper relation to God as servants is by serving something other than him. Often it's ourselves might be good for us just to do a kind of internal look at our own hearts and ask the Lord this week, what am I serving? Sometimes it's fear, the opinion of others, but we've got to serve. And Paul says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. Or in verse nine, I serve God with my spirit. So let's move into the second question. How does this re proper relation come about? How do we become servants of the one true God and enter into life as it was meant to be? What enables Paul to be in this right relation to God? And of course it is the reality of the gospel, the power of God at work in his life. It's the result of the good news that God has accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus, and the forgiveness of sins that this brings about and the gift of the spirit that this inaugurates in our lives that creates us into new, human beings and here's what's amazing 
is it is, of course, deeply wrong for us to make God into our servant. But it is never deeply wrong for God to make himself our servant. And that's what's at the heart of the gospel. It's astonishing. It's a wonder of wonders that God has become our servant in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's only in this way that we can be remade, restored, the pieces glued back together because of what God has chosen to do. There's this amazing moment in John chapter 13. Many of you know it well. When Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, it's the night before he's going to be crucified and he takes up the towel and he wraps after supper and he wraps it around his waist. And what does he do? He goes to his disciples one by one and he takes that this is what only the lowest servants would do in that culture. And he begins to wash their feet. Talk about a leadership class, there it is. Washes their feet. And then he gets to Peter. And you remember that interaction with Peter? Peter says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answers him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And then Peter in his brashness, as he always said, you shall never wash my feet. No, I'm to serve you. You're not going to be in this position of a servant of me. Never wash my feet. And Jesus responds in this moment of interaction. He says, if I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. In other words, the only way into a proper relation to God, to becoming genuinely restored to what we were created to be as a servant of the living God, is for the living God to be our servant first. The foot washing was just a symbolic action that pointed to the cross of the next day. It's at the cross that God himself in the person of his son would deal with our deepest problems, sin and guilt and shame, and he would wash it away through his own sacrifice giving himself for you and for me, that we might be brought into genuine life in him and become a part of his family, become servants of him once again. This is what we must do. So we cannot enter into this proper relation to God as a servant without first having God be our servant. And knowing that deeply and personally, this is not just some kind of abstract idea. It's not just something that we kind of hang on to as we walk in the doors of the church. This is deeply personal. When Paul is writing about the heart of the gospel in Galatians chapter 2, he refers to Jesus as the one who loved me and gave himself up for me, Paul says. Can you say that? That he loves you? That he gave himself up for you? That he served you? That he washed your feet? That he took away your sin? That he embraced you? That's how we enter into becoming a servant of the living God. And think about it. Think about the, the person writing this letter to, to the church in Rome. What was he known for before he encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road? He was an enemy of Christ. He was persecuting the church of God. Anybody who had anything to do with this name called Jesus, Paul was making sure, at the time he was named Saul, he was making sure that they couldn't flourish. He knew he didn't qualify. He was against this king. And then this king met him and washed him and cleansed him, and embraced him, and commissioned him. Well, he made him blind. It wasn't very fun. But he, he, he transformed his life and brought him into his service. That's how we become a servant. Has Jesus washed you? Has he served you? The third point is what motivates us. And obviously, I'm kind of there in the heart of this right now. 
the thing that motivates us to live this life of service is this radical love of God expressed to us in the gospel of his son. Nothing else will really motivate us to serve the living king other than a deep awareness of his radical love for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live, that's you and me, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ controls us. It's the love of Christ that moves us and motivates us. So back to verse 9, Paul says, God is my witness whom I serve. And he adds this little expression, whom I serve with my spirit. Well, that means with the very center and core of my being, with the principle of my life, with the heart. We have this expression in the modern day, you know, I'm with you heart and soul. That's essentially what Paul is saying. The 1984 NIV gloss on this is with my whole heart. This comes out of a heart that's been radically changed and revolutionized by the the love of God in Christ. And that's how our service is motivated. It's motivated by understanding what God has done for us in his son. And it shapes our service to not be begrudging or forced or half-hearted or obligatory. But to offer it up freely from the depth of our being. The depth of our desire to serve God is directly correlated to the depth of our understanding of his love and sacrifice for us. Which is to say this, that if you go, if if you're leaving the church this morning and you're finding that your spiritual life is is dry and difficult, and, and sometimes it will be, and often, quite honestly, being a servant of God is hard and challenging, and I think we should be honest about that in the church. Jesus led us to expect this as well, and certainly the example of the earliest believers shows us this. But if you're finding that this is just hardly getting off the ground, then I, my simple encouragement to you this morning would be to contemplate the depth of Christ's love for you, expressed unambiguously and clearly once and for all at the cross, and to just sit there and dwell upon his love, that he loved you and gave himself up for you, When we know that, when that's changed us, when that's moved us, when that's at the center of our lives, even when it's difficult, there will be a willingness and an openness and a deep motivation to continue to walk with God as his servant in obedience to him. I want to say that we're not just servants, though. There's another metaphor, one that is perhaps much more warm for us but Paul often speaks about us being sons and daughters of the father that we've been adopted into his family by grace and we're we're also referred to as Jesus in John chapter 15 he says I actually don't call you doulos anymore I don't call you slaves I call you friends remember that this is an incredible thing by the way and it doesn't ever change the fact that the fundamental proper relation between us and God is one of servanthood. But it certainly shifts the tone. We will never become like the elder brother who was like, Lord, I was with you all my life doing these things. What do I have to show for it? But we know that we've been adopted into his family. We've been called by him as friends. And that moves us 
informs our service to come out of a, a heart that is alive. So we're moved and motivated by the love of God. Lastly, the sphere of our service, Paul says in verse 9, where is the sphere? It is in the gospel of his son. That good news, remember, is an ongoing good news that's being proclaimed by us, the people of God, throughout the city of Boston and beyond, day in and day out. It's the good news that God is reconciling all things through the forgiveness of the cross, that he's renewing all things by the power of his Holy Spirit, that there's a new work in the world and we are a part of it. We're invited into it. And that's the sphere within which God wants us to serve. And here's the thing. There's no checkout. There's no, like, time card. You know when you leave the office, it's been a long day, you're like, good, I'm done. Now I can go home and do something relaxing or brainless. Well, in the Christian life of service, when we are servants of God, there's never a moment where we're not his servant. There's never a time to check out of that identity as his son or daughter, as his friend who serves him through and through. Because God's mission of reconciling and renewing all things throughout the world is happening in our homes at 11 p.m. at night, in our relationships, our most intimate relationships, it's happening with the people that we encounter on the sidewalk outside after the service. It's happening in your small group meeting this week. It's happening always and everywhere. The sphere of this service of God is literally anywhere and everywhere that you find yourself and any time. Thanks be to God that he is our source of strength and supply for the sphere of serving him in the gospel of his son, for this mission going forth. The gospel makes us wholehearted servants. It's the love of God in Jesus that's expressed so clearly at the cross that is the means by which God restores us, puts the pieces back together, and enables us then to reflect his light, his glory, his love, and his power into the world around us as we take up this role of a servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us, that you have become our servant, that we might serve you. And Lord, my prayer simply is that you would breathe your breath upon us, your spirit upon us, that it would warm our hearts again to the beauty and depth and wonder of your love, that we might serve you faithfully in the week ahead, doing our duty cheerfully, joyfully, gladly, because of your great love for us. May we be known for this, O Lord, as a people. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.